are back in our series, Better Promises, taken from the letter written to the Hebrews. And the title for today's message is Step Out of the Shadow. And I just have the sneaky suspicion that this is going to break at any time. So let's see. So um, I'm an avid podcast listener. So Jesse, a few weeks back, told how he listens to audiobooks. Um, I, I mostly do podcasts when I'm driving about. And one of the podcasts that I enjoy listening to uh, takes a look at uh, different businesses and their successes and sometimes their failures. And uh, it, I happen to listen uh, as they have chronicled the history of the Apple company. And uh, its two biggest CEOs, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. Um, now, Steve Jobs is one of those creative geniuses who has really changed the world for better or worse. Um, and I've, I've really been intrigued by his life. And with his life, there is a huge amount of sadness. Um, as you listen to um, his battle with cancer and um, really his unbelief in the gospel. Uh, it seems he died without knowing the Lord. But Steve Jobs was a ruthless innovator. And people who worked with him would often say that he was very, very difficult to work with. He pushed the company to always be moving forward new inventions, new innovation. And uh, he would push them to move the technology beyond what others could achieve. Apple would go, to, go on to revolutionize the world with products like the Macintosh, the iPod, and now the iPhone. Apple's first personal computer aimed at the average consumer was the Apple II. Now... Some of you, that looks like about as foreign of an object as you can imagine. This, uh, this released in 1977 uh, to much fanfare. It was uh, purchased by a lot of people. And then I can remember, even as a child, using the Apple IIc. Now, this computer released the same year that I was born, 1984. The black screen with the green text, the floppy disks. Some of you are going, what on earth is a floppy disk? Well, go look up on the interwebs and you'll find out. The, orig the original Apple II came with 4 kilobytes of RAM and 1.023 megahertz processor. Now, for some perspective, because I know some of, the, some of you are going, I have no idea what any of that is, I have the iPhone XR. And uh, that, since I know you can't really see that, that's what that is. The original Apple II could only store things on external storage. So uh, originally it came with these cassette tapes for storage. And then uh, the floppy disk came around. The Apple IIc floppy disk stored 140 kilobytes of data. This iPhone XR has storage of 128 gigabytes. And that is 128 million kilobytes. And if my math is right, this iPhone can store 914,285 times more storage than a floppy disk. That's a lot of photos. <laughs> and yet we're still always complaining about not having enough space. Now, I wouldn't trade this device for an Apple II or an Apple IIc, except maybe to play around on. You know, maybe uh, walk down memory lane, play Frogger or something. <laughs> the Oregon Trail. But I really have no desire to use that for daily work, you know, 
Definitely can't use it for surfing the internet. Not really good for connection with people. The Apple II is old and outdated. And it would be crazy for me to think that I could do everything that I need to do for work and for um, all the other things that I do each day on it. Why is that? Because it's obsolete. What we'll see today as we look at the first half of Hebrews 10 is that the author is not just comparing the old and the new covenants to show that the new is simply an improvement. It's not a new operating system, covenant 2.0. It's a complete overhaul and replacement. And rather than continue to speak of it in such ways that it's just somewhat of a, a nicer version, a cleaned up version, we need to see that the old is obsolete and the new is completely better and a renovation and uh, just it brings life. The old was insufficient for salvation, whereas the new covenant in Christ's blood has brought about salvation. And so we can say the old is obsolete. Now, we've seen these comparisons throughout Hebrews. We've, we've been through nine chapters now, and we've seen the comparisons of the old and the new systems. But the author here continues to dig deeper into the meaning of the new covenant. He is mining the depths of the gospel. He'll expertly add new understanding like layers placed on top of each other. And so as we look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 today, we'll unpack two thoughts. First, the shadow taken away. And second, live in the light. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your grace and mercy that you've lavished upon us, your tremendous love that you've given to us freely and unconditionally. We thank you that Jesus came and he died in our place and that his blood truly is enough. Help us to see that this morning. Help us to uh, cling to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hold fast to it. We ask that you would just continue to stir our affections for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author here calls the law a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It's not the substance of the good things. Rather, it is a shadow or a picture or a type of what was to come. Paul says something very similar in Colossians two sixteen and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So these things of food and drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath, these are all things related to the old covenant and to the law. He's saying that they are a shadow of the things to come. We have seen that the author has in mind throughout this letter those who would prefer to return to living underneath the shadow. Those who would rather have the arrow that is pointing than the actual thing that the arrow is pointing to. They would rather the shadow instead of the substance of the good things. 
But under this shadow of the old covenant and the law, you could never quite do enough. It was constant, continual, and repetitive. And certainly, as we've mentioned before, the repetition and the actions they would partake in gave some sort of um, comfort. You know, they had their hands on uh, this system. However, the worshiper was never close enough, clean enough, or forgiven enough. God allowed this system to be this way to reveal that only Jesus could truly take away sin. He was the only one who could bring about perfect cleansing. The priests in the old offered the same sacrifices every day. The Day of Atonement came every year. And all these sacrifices and offerings couldn't take sin away. The work of the earthly Levitical priesthood was a continual reminder of sin. But because the blood of animals couldn't remove or take away the sin, it had to be done again and again and again to cover. And it could only cover. If the old system had been sufficient to take away, then wouldn't it have stopped? It would have ended. No more sacrifices. And the worshiper would have no consciousness of sin. What does that mean? It simply means a clean conscience. What the new covenant brings to the believer is greater. The one who believes in the one-time finished sacrifice of Jesus has a clean conscience. Whereas under the old, sin could not be taken away, but under the new, Jesus has taken away sin. Paul says in Romans 8, 3, and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this kind of brings about the question, why then have the law at all? We do need to remember that God gave the law. He gave it to point to Christ. And believe it or not, we're even told that the law was given that sin would actually increase. Romans 5, 20 and 21, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law was given under the old covenant to Israel to point to Christ, to show their sin, to expose it. Uh, it, It's also said in the New Testament, it's given so that it would shut the mouth. It stops us from making any sort of argument for our own righteousness. It stops our mouth. Those under the law would recognize their inability to justify themselves with it. But now, as we'll see, Jesus has taken away the shadow. So let's read verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author here, as Mike pointed out earlier, quotes from Psalm 40. And he says that it was Jesus who said it. And then he offers some comments on it. As I've mentioned before, Hebrews can sometimes act as a commentary uh, to help us see through gospel lenses what the old covenant was about. The sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings are those offered under the law. They were offering animals, but Jesus is the only priest to ever offer his own body. This word will in verses 7 and 9, we saw this a few weeks ago, uh, means the same, uh, it's the same word for testament and covenant. Jesus is saying, I have come to bring a new covenant or a new will. The old way was all about sacrifices, wherein this new way, this new will, this new covenant, it's all about Jesus. God, through the law, required these sacrifices and these offerings, but he took no pleasure in them. They were to show the seriousness of sin and the inability of fallen humanity to justify themselves. In verse 9, we see here something amazing. God didn't just send Jesus um, as some kind of addition to the law. No, the author says he, being Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. This phrase, does away, is the same word for abolish. The author does so to punctuate the termination of the old covenant as forcefully as he can. Jesus has abolished the old covenant. He has taken it away so that he can establish the new. There is no mixing law and grace. They just don't mix. Grace is not some addendum to the law. For the Christian, please note, for the Christian... Jesus has taken the law away, and grace has been inserted in its place. Now, you might be asking, what about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the old covenant is taken away, it's abolished, while the law itself didn't die. The law hasn't gone away completely. It's still alive and it still has a purpose. And that purpose is to convict the ungodly, to convict the unbeliever, to point the unbeliever to Christ. We need to grasp this. The law didn't die, but the believer has. Therefore, our relationship to the law has changed. Romans 7, 1 through 6, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband, and while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, 
so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So therefore, is the believer under the law? No, the believer's not. The law can be used to give wisdom. It can be used as a tool to show us what love looks like because we are encouraged to love one another over and over in the New Testament. It can show us what that looks like. It is to be used to point unbelievers to Christ and their need for Jesus. But we who have believed are no longer under and are now dead to the law which once held us captive. Now, as I tried to convey in my introduction, um, to return to something obsolete would be absurd. If I was to go and buy an Apple II and try to load the newest Apple operating system on it, would that work? Not at all. Totally different systems built on different features and whatnot. The old system is obsolete and no longer binding for the believer. And this would have been revolutionary to the Jew. If you can somehow put yourself in their place for a moment, they're hearing that the animal sacrifices are just no longer needed, but they've done this their whole life. And now these animal sacrifices are actually an insult to God? That's radical and would have been very difficult for them to accept. Now, are you and I tempted and drawn back to sacrifices and offerings? No. And yes. No, in the sense that you and I aren't tempted by animal sacrifices to cover for sin. The only time we're, you know, slaughtering animals in our backyard is probably to barbecue them. (laughs) But yes, in the sense that we so often turn to things outside of God's... uh, method outside of what god has accomplished in christ for us perhaps we're tempted to apologize our way out maybe we'll make all sorts of promises to god god i'm so sorry forgive me and if you do i promise i'll read my bible you know at least for 10 more minutes i'll pray more i'll go to church more i'll be more committed i'll be more zealous More, more, more. Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, would physically beat himself over the guilt and shame that he carried. Now, maybe we don't physically beat ourselves, but perhaps we do some sort of emotional penance, beating ourselves up emotionally for the things that we sometimes find ourselves still doing even now. Not just our past record, but even the things we struggle with at times. And we can certainly turn all sorts of good things into lifeless rituals, prayer, church, the Bible, all these wonderful things that God gives us as a gift, we turn them into dead rituals. There is no ritual that will please God. A ritual assumes the work is not done, but it is done. Isn't that what we just saw last week with the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection? What did he say? It is finished. Isn't that what Hebrews has been showing us all along? The work is done. When you have once for all time forgiveness, you don't need to turn to rituals. You don't need to turn to more commitment and more pleading for 
I don't know, more favor or forgiveness. You have it. And so there's nothing left to do about your sin. And God won't take pleasure in something you do about your sin anyways. Now, am I saying that you'll never sin? Of course not. But remember, for those who have believed the good news, you are forgiven. There's a place for agreeing with God about the things that you still might do that are wrong. And it's definitely good and natural as a believer now to desire to act differently than when you've sinned. And so you can look at different ways to use wisdom uh, and what not to deal with these things. But when it comes to the forgiveness of your sin, God esteems the work of his son and rejects anything that ignores the blood of Christ. In verse 10, the author shows that we have been sanctified. Now, this word sanctified means to be set apart. We've been set apart for God by this new covenant. And you are as set apart for God as you ever will be. When Jesus purchased you, you became his completely. Now, there's certainly room and and there's growth in the life of the believer We're both sanctified and being sanctified. You're learning, you're growing, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. There's the renewing of the mind that takes place as you continue to behold the good news of Jesus Christ, as you hear the word of Christ and believe. The struggle of sanctification or our growth is that we often look to other means and we don't look to the new covenant. We look to our apologies. We look to our promises to be better, to try harder. We look to all these outside fleshy things. We're always progress checking. Well, am I better than I was last week? And am I better than I was last year? Jesus' finished work allows us to step out of the shadow and live in the light of the good news. So let us not attempt attempt to mix the shadow with the good things. Rather, live in this light. Live in the light of grace. Let's read verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In high school, I worked at Walmart in the hometown of uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota. I remember the first time I had to work as a cashier on the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday. And it felt like I stood for days on end. I mean, really, it was only around eight hours with some breaks in between. Uh, But it felt like days. The unending line of people with cheap gadgets and toys felt like it would never end. Every time I finished with one customer, I would look up and, whoa, there's another customer right in front of me. The Levitical priesthood worked constantly. There were lots of priests, and they rotated who worked. They had shifts. But when they worked, it was constant. In both the tabernacle and then later in the temple, there were no chairs. There was no sitting. There was no resting. Constant standing, 
constant busyness. And I can just imagine how bloody the work was. And because they had to have clean robes, I imagine there was a lot of changing as well. They would finish one sacrifice and have to get cleaned up and then do another sacrifice. There was always another bull, another goat, another lamb. And this all communicated that the work was never done. And again, it was never done because because these animals could not take away sin. They could only cover. But Jesus did something altogether different. He being the greater priest, after offering his own body as a sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of the Father. He declared in this action the absolute doneness of the work. And this was unthinkable to the old priesthood. They were forbidden to sit, but Jesus sat. Jesus purposely sat down to declare in the heavens that the work was truly finished. This really is the best forgiveness you could ever imagine. He's not looking to bring up all these charges against you. Do you see how radical this is yet? He is saying, I will never deal with your sin again. And so now we can rest from our striving to justify ourselves. We rest because Jesus is resting. You and I are united with Christ. We are hidden in him. And so our truest position right now, this very second, if you are a believer, your truest position is that of being seated in the heavenly places with Christ, as Ephesians 2 says. The work of the old priest displayed that under the old covenant, the work didn't end. You could never be cleansed enough. There was always more to do, more animals to sacrifice. But Christ sitting displays that we are now clean. We are now close and there's nothing left to do. It's a finished work. And so when we turn to the flesh to make things right, to keep um, ourselves okay with God, to maintain our relationship, what we are saying is that Jesus didn't do it all. We're communicating with our actions that it isn't done, that there's more to do, and that somehow we could do something maybe better than Jesus. I know, I know we're not thinking that, that explicitly, but that is what our actions portray. So let us abandon that thought. Let us flee from that thought of trying to add to the finished work. Continuing with verse 13, the author writes, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So there's still an enemy. Though the death blow has been dealt, Satan for the time being still schemes and he still deceives. And in Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That is his greatest weapon. He doesn't fight believers with flesh and blood. He's not coming after you with a sword. He fights in the mind. He fights with thoughts. And he accuses day and night, attempting to get your eyes off of Christ and on yourself. And so you need a defense. Our only defense against the accuser is the blood of Jesus. See, the enemy in his system, his powers, the world, the flesh... All these things are designed to get believers, you and I, to look away from Christ. He wants us to forget all about what Christ has done. 
and just wallow in despair. He wants us to stop seeing how free we are in Christ. And so when the enemy comes and throws accusations in your face, saying, look what you did. You're so dirty. God could never love you. You're far from him. God doesn't even want to talk to you right now. Keep your eyes fixed on what Jesus has done. In that one time, once for all, cleansing, which shows that you are loved and you are close and you are clean. By that single offering, those who have believed have been perfected. That means perfectly forgiven, perfectly cleansed, both, both sanctified and being sanctified. You have been made holy and set apart, totally forgiven, and you're growing. You're growing in love, your mind is being renewed, and the spirit-given fruit is growing. And so we are waiting eagerly for the day when the enemy is destroyed and God makes him his footstool. Let's continue reading verses 15 through 18 here. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The Trinity is in agreement. And it's not just a Jesus and the Father thing. And the Holy Spirit's just kind of over here somewhere. It's not as some have perhaps painted the picture that uh, the Father, uh, he's the Old Testament guy and he's angry all the time. He's a big, mean judge. And Jesus, he's loving and kind. And the Holy Spirit, as some have portrayed, is just constantly poking and prodding you again to show how dirty you are. The author says here that the Holy Spirit testifies, he bears witness to the fact that you're forgiven. He quotes Jeremiah 31, 33, attributing it to the Holy Spirit. And so can I just say the Holy Spirit is pleased to have you? He welcomes you. He's the one that did the work of regeneration. He's the one that has, uh, by the blood of Jesus, taken up residence in your heart. This salvation plan is a whole trinity plan. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're all in on this wonderful redemption plan. And in verse 16, the author quoting Jeremiah writes, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What are these laws written on your heart and mind? I believe it's what Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's love and love. Now, this is not meaning that in order to receive forgiveness, you have to love God perfectly with all your soul, heart, mind. You could never do that perfectly a day in your life. I haven't. The author is showing us, the author of Hebrews is showing us that as born again, new creations, that's what's written on your heart and written on your mind. As one who is forgiven, you are loving and growing in that love. God's laws of love for God and love for people have now been written on your mind and heart. Meaning it's now happening as a fruit of his spirit. What's the first? I'm going to get them out of order, so why don't we go ahead and turn to Galatians. I don't have everything memorized. <laughs> 
What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what's been written on your heart and you're continuing to grow in what you're continuing to bear. The first is love. The old covenant was lived from stone tablets and lived from obligation to keep the whole law. And because no one could do that, there were offerings and sacrifices. But the new covenant is not lived from stone tablets or rituals. It's not lived simply from a book or from one hour in a building each week. This new covenant, this relationship with Christ is lived in the heart and in the mind. This means that God is with you wherever you are. His spirit is in you. The Christian life is lived looking to Christ and resting in his finished work. And then we come to verses 17 and 18, and they seem to sum this all up really well. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. As I said earlier, God is not looking to beat you up with your past. He's not looking to throw something at you uh, 27 years from now, pull out one of your many mistakes and said, uh, you know, I've been thinking about it. At one time, like 27 years ago, really bugged me. And I'm just going to cut you loose because I've just been mulling it over and I'm done. No. He has chosen to forgive you fully, completely, and to remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. And that includes the sins you might yet commit. You know, when he said all of this, all of your sin was in the future. He wrote this before you were born. So all the lawless things you've done, he has chosen to forget those things. So yes, even the mistakes we will yet make are forgiven. There's no more need for beating ourselves up for these things. There's no more need for thinking that God's going to beat us up for these things. Where there's forgiveness of sins and lawlessness, there's no longer any offering required. No more need for offerings or sacrifices. No need for rituals. No need for empty promises. No need for striving with more commitment. I mean, it's good to be devoted. It's good to have self-discipline and self-control. Those are good things, right? but they're not earning you something with God. Have you believed the good news that Jesus died, was buried, rose from the grave in victory, that he appeared before many? You are forgiven. And so the shadow is taken away and the believer now lives in the light. What do I mean by that, to live in the light? What I mean is to live in the knowledge of that good news. The Bible often uses the word know or knowledge in reference to these things. And that just simply means to be grounded in it, to obsess over it like we read in earlier in Hebrews. Maybe it was chapter 4. I can't remember exactly what chapter. But we talked about furiously obsessing over it. It's to know this forgiveness and this message. We will often struggle to feel forgiven. We will struggle and think these thoughts. Oh, I didn't do enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not clean enough. This is the battle of belief. 
This is the fight of faith that Paul talks about. And so hold fast to the good news. You will continue to battle those feelings and those thoughts while on this side of eternity. Those thoughts and feelings, as we've pointed out, come from the enemy, the accuser. So take every thought captive by knowing and believing the good news. The blood of Jesus, this new covenant, this finished work of Jesus is your only defense. And because you're in a body that is still corrupted by the fall, you're in the weakness of flesh, you need to be reminded of the gospel often. That's why we gather together. That's why we gather on Sunday. One of the main reasons is to remind each other of the finished work. And so I encourage you to dig deep into relational community in the church. God has given you, he has gifted you brothers and sisters in Christ to remind you of the truth of the gospel. When you drift, when you get distracted, and when you do sin. The people that are surrounding you right now have been given to you as gifts. And you yourself are a gift to others. Scripture says that we need all the members. That's not talking about some kind of formal membership, though we do that here at Grace Life. We're talking about being members of one another, the body of Christ. And so could I ever just say to my leg, I don't need you anymore? Now, certainly there are incidents and things happen. I make prosthetics and stuff like that, and that's all great. But I can't just, you know, tell a part of my body, like, "Eh, I don't need you. We can't look at each other and say, I have no need of you. We need each other. And that's why I encourage you to get in a grace group. If you can't get in a grace group, get in some context of meeting together with brothers and sisters. Get to know one another. Go out for coffee. Do something. Have, them in, have other people over to your house for dinner. Simply put, we need one another. Love one another. Love covers a multitude of weaknesses, and I've got a multitude of weaknesses. So do you. So we need each other to love one another. As we see next week, we're encouraged to stir up one another to love and good works. That's another reason we get together. And so, brothers and sisters, shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of the shadows of law. Whenever you see a brother or sister stepping into that shadow, not in arrogance, but with grace, gentleness, full of humility.